This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. And if you've heard me talk about Grammy, you know that she means the world to me. I wanted a dog for probably 10 years and I was living in an apartment, couldn't have dogs. When I finally moved somewhere else, I adopted her within weeks and it was love at first scritch. She's about two feet away from me as I record this. She hangs out in the studio and all I want to do is smooch her and look at her and stare at her. I also like feeding her because I see how happy it makes her. And there's nothing like watching her lick her chops after having yummy stuff like Grammy's pot pie or real Texas beef and sweet potato, which are two recipes she's been enjoying for America. As her parent, I like that they use deboned meat and fish or poultry as the number one ingredient. I also like that they have these real ingredients and you can see them on the bag so you know what's in each one. And watching her do a little dance, especially with a Grammy's pot pie recipe, brings too much joy to my heart. Is there such a thing as too much joy? I'm not sure. But check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. Hey, Fidelity. What's it cost to invest with the Fidelity app? Start with as little as $1 with no account fees or trade commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs. Hmm, that's music to my ears. I can only talk. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Zero account fees apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Zero dollar commission applies to online U.S. equity trades and ETFs and retail Fidelity accounts. Sell order assessment fee not included. Some account types and securities excluded. Details at fidelity.com slash commissions. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Hey, it's your sense of thirst, just wishing that you could distinguish me from hunger. Hallie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. Okay, so every morning I wake up and I get punched in the face by a wolf. And I call this she-wolf gremlin. She weighs 12 pounds. She looks kind of like a dirty mop, possessed by an angel. And she does hit me in the face. Um, In the morning when she sees my eyes are open, she tries to gently tap my eyes to say, it's time to watch me make water, old lady. So often I start my day uh, with a claw in my nostril. I love it. She is the result of between eighteen to 32,000 years of genetic diversion and selective tinkering. And she is a wolf in poodly sheepskin. She is a daughter who will never tell me I suck and then ask to borrow the car. And this week we talk about her and her ancestors, the wolf. But before we do, a little business. So thank you to everyone at patreon.com slash ologies who contributes as little as 25 cents an episode to submit your questions. I named Gremlin after your aunts because I love you all so much. Also, thank you to everyone walking around and stuff from ologiesmerch.com. Thanks to everyone who tweets and grams and tick chats, snap talks about ologies for spreading the word that the world can be wonderful. And it is always weird if we just stop to understand it. And thanks to everyone who rates and subscribes, most of all, who leaves reviews to keep the podcast up in the top 10 science pods out there. Um, and also for me to see and make my day, such as more than a little confused, who said, I was just talking to my grandpa and got to amaze him with my knowledge of spidrinology. Thanks, dad. And he asked me where I heard this. So I told him about ologies and he was curious. So I started giving him examples of some of my favorite episodes, Corbett Thanatology, Mycology, etc. And mentioned the demonology show to which he said, where can you get these? And I said, there was a podcast app on your phone and it's called ologies. Moral of the story, somewhere in the world, an old man may be listening to you talk about demon sex. You're welcome. More than a little confused, boy, howdy, thank you. And to your cool grandpa, hi, welcome to our world. Sorry, I swear so much. Okay, lupinology, the study of wolves. Now, would a wolf biologist call themselves a lupinologist? No, hell no. They'd be like, hi, I'm a wolf biologist. But here, I make the rules and I make the guests wear full regalia of their ology. This person is a lupinologist. From the Latin, lupus, 
meaning wolf. Okay, so what are you doing on November 23rd? I'll tell you, you're celebrating Wolfenut. This is a secular global holiday. It dates way back to 2018, when a then seven-year-old New Zealander proclaimed to his mother, Jax Goss, that November 23rd of every year is when the spirit of the wolf brings and hides small gifts around the house for everyone. And people who have, have had, or are kind to dogs get better gifts than anyone else. So you eat roast meat because wolves eat meat and a cake decorated like a full moon. And according to a very helpful frequently asked questions at wolfanute.com, vegetarians can partake, of course. Just roast and eat whatever you like. The official model is no hate, only snoot boops. And the customary greeting is have a howly wolfanute. So in anticipation of this day, I emailed a well-known lupinologist to ask for an interview and I got a two-word response. No thanks. Burn. So I reached out to another awesome one, and she said, sure, but first requested a list of the questions I'd be asking. And I thought, what's with wolf people? Why are they such PR divas? But who boy, I found out while doing my research that wolf biology is a hotbed of strong opinions, expert retractions, debate, public controversy, and delicious ecological drama. So buckle up. So I sent this amazing, kind, and brilliant real-life wolf scientist a list of some questions and assured her, I just want to know more about wolves. I'm not out to stir up any trubs. I'm not throwing anyone under any buses. She's like, cool, we set a time. So she got a bachelor's in psychology and then went on to do a master's in biology at NYU. She got her PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology at UCLA. She's now a professor. So this past Saturday morning, on her day off, because she is so kind, we embraced the magic of video conference as her dog was tragically downstairs and out of frame, but as a consolation, her cat was on her lap. And we covered a ton of ground as a pack of two, three, I guess with a cat, about what a wolf is, and wolf DNA, and how they hunt, and alpha wolves, and howling, and moons, and fur, and teeth, and hunting, and lone wolves, and being raised by wolves, and how domestic dogs are like eternal puppies, and how they have similar genes to some of us, and where coyotes factor in, and if she will be celebrating Wolfenute on November 23rd. So invite some friends over. Roast something. Decorate a full moon cake and hide little gifts to people who are kind, especially to wolves and doggos. But first, duck into the den and fill your heart with wolf facts with biologist and lupinologist, Dr. Bridget Von Holt. Do you make people um, address you as, as doctor? I do not. My students do refer to me as professor. I do have to tell them, you can call me Bridget. It's okay. <laughs> That's acceptable. But yeah. Mm -hmm. You do not demand the title mm -hmm. of Dr. Wolf then? Uh, no, I do not. I <laughs> do not at all. <laughs> That's never come across the table as a possibility, but I like it. So Dr. Wolf, as she does not wish to be called, is now an associate professor at Princeton University and has been working with wolves and wolf data for nearly 15 years. That is 105 dog years. And I want to be vulnerable and let you know that I went to the trouble of pulling up a calculator app to figure that out. 
I started working on anything related to canines in 2004. Um, that's when I uh, joined uh, Dr. Robert Wayne's lab at UCLA, Bob, affectionately mm-hmm. Bob. And mm-hmm. from there, uh, everything took off, basically. I was able to expand out from uh, just wolf focus. We were then able to investigate dog and dog evolution and then coyotes and red wolves and, and anything else. Were you always interested in science? Were you always kind of an outdoor kid or an indoor kid? My my dad was in the military, so for what I consider the formable years of exposure. We lived in Florida. So I say we because I have a twin sister and my memories are always wrapped with her (laughs) in it. So we would play out um, across the street and in Florida, just across from our house, there was a little estuary. So it it seemed just so mysterious what was in the water, what could live in the water versus sort of in this very unpredictable environment of tides. What's out there? So that really sparked my interest in um, biology in general. And, you know, we were always animal lovers and wanted to protect endangered species and try to save the world. And and that just butted into where I started, which was conservation-focused research. Are your sister, are you guys uh, identical or fraternal? We are identical. Do you think that informed any interest you had in genetics at all? This is such a popular question, and I really wish that I could say yes. Um, It didn't, it really didn't enter my scope of thinking until I was much older and already interested in biology and science in general. It did, yeah, I think for a long time it just seemed like such a special relationship, but nothing that was, um, I don't know, entirely unique. And yeah, the older I get, the more I realize siblings vary quite dramatically in their relationships, let alone twins, whether they're identical or not. So I do spend a lot of time now thinking about twin-based studies. And though we're supposedly sharing nearly every one of our nucleotides and Mm -hmm. have very similar upbringings in very similar environments, we have our differences. So I, I do end up thinking about that now more so than when I was a child. Her sister, also a scientist, but works to protect waterways. So she deserves a Wolfenut gift for that. But how did Bridget end up running with wolves? She said she was never really a dog or a cat person, but after her master's in biology, she happened to be emailing labs, asking if they were hiring for research positions, just putting herself out there, like making cold calls, but by typing. Bob, Bob Wayne, had replied to my interest in looking for a research position by saying, basically, we have hundreds of samples of Yellowstone gray wolves in our freezer, and we've been waiting to analyze them, oh. and, and which shocked me that that they were just sitting there ready. No one was using them, or the story was no one owned them in a research way. And I said, I would love to do that. And it all was really based in conservation effort, which is exactly where I had started my my highest level of enthusiasm. The basis of conservation efforts for the Yellowstone wolf population, it was... Um, brand new. No one had done anything. And he hired me essentially over email. And that was the start of the canine work. And and that focus on conservation was so exciting for me. And did you have to move to Los Angeles for that? Or were you based in LA? No, I had to move to Los Angeles. I had just been um, living in New York City. I graduated with my master's from NYU and I wanted to do something. So I mm-hmm. picked up and, and drove cross country with my cat. 
<laughs> and my dad. <laughs> dad drove over to help pick up all of my stuff. I mean, I didn't have that much. I was living in a New York apartment. So um, we packed everything into a, a single car and did a two or three day trip. We stopped to visit my sister, of course, in Wisconsin and then mm-hmm. completed the way all the way down through Colorado, which is where he was based. My, my parents were living and then up, up through um, Los Angeles. <laughs> what was it like when you got to Bob's lab and you got to see the freezer with the samples? Were you like, let me at them? Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I was f- just shocked that this opportunity lay ripe for someone to come in and just tinker with and put their own spin on things. And so it, it was such an incredible moment. There were hundreds of samples. I, If I remember anywhere between 400 and, and 500, I think, blood samples and tissue samples. The Yellowstone uh, biologists, park biologists, work annually to monitor their wolves. So they not only take blood samples when they collar them and look at their overall health, but opportunistically when they run into carcasses or um, if they're happens to be any hunting permitted over the years, usually they'll get some sort of voucher voucher specimen from um, the trapping or hunting efforts. So there was just tubes, racks full of tubes in the freezer. And it just made for um, a lot of work in the beginning, a lot of organizing, but uh, it, it just felt like the perfect thing. I felt so lucky. I was just at the right place at the right time. I honestly think there's so much more of that in people's careers in science than, you know, what maybe we acknowledge that you're just, you're just thinking about the right thing at the right time with the right technology or the right people. And, and so I felt like that was the beginning of my career. But this is a, a stupid basic question, but what, what is a wolf? What's the difference between a wolf and a coyote and a big fox and a domestic dog, genetically speaking? Oh, okay. Genetically. Well, so all of these animals are are carnivores. They're Mm -hmm. um, in carnivora. And that means that there's a defining feature to be a carnivore. And this is usually talking about um, skeletal shape and cranial shape and teeth morphology. So to eat meat, you have to have certain physiology. You have to have certain teeth structure to cut and shear that meat. There's usually some olfaction and visual sense in, in terms of being a predator that eats, has a meat-based diet. Within Carnivora. We're going to focus on more of the canine-related families and species. Foxes, coyotes, um, dog-like species, they do have common ancestors. So they do arise from this ancestral carnivore. The ecology that has shaped each of these lineages their diet, their social nature, all of this variation is quite incredible. So wolves, broadly speaking, live across much of the northern parts of all of the continents. This is called a whole Arctic distribution. We usually find them in temperate or much more higher latitudes. Coyotes are a North American evolved canine species. So you only find coyotes in North America. You, uh, jackals are also the Eurasian version, basically, that we don't have jackals that evolved in North America. They are both a little bit smaller, typically, than a gray wolf. They live in a very different type of ecology. So if we focus on North America, which is um, the continent I'm a little better at, <laughs> coyotes and wolves, though they both live on this continent, they do 
essentially segregate out based on on habitat and the presence of the other. Coyotes don't typically live in a pack structure, although they have been known to form packs um, over the course of their evolution. But typically coyotes mate as a pair and don't really form any larger groups than that. Wolves have a much larger group. They will predate on much larger species and they competitively um, take larger prey, whereas coyote might come up and then try to steal whatever prey or carcass items are left from a a wolf. And that's where conflict will usually happen. And wolves are known to kill coyote. Alternatively, coyotes can gang up and kill um, wolves, especially if it's injured or malnourished or young. So there is competition between those two species. And how big is a wolf? What kind of dog size would you compare it to? Well, actually, Malamutes can be much larger than wolves. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, I've seen Malamutes well over 120 pounds. And wolves, wolves can be very close to that size, but generally you can get them anywhere from 80 pounds upwards to 100, 120. So dogs can um, be larger than wolves, but... Also, we've bred them to be incredibly large, and maybe their diets have something to do with it, whether or not they're larger. But but wolves are pretty substantial creatures. <laughs> okay, so how many species of wolves are there all over the world? I had no idea. Like, a 100 species? I, I don't know. And I thought I'd get a clean answer, but holy moly, is it herky-jerky and murky? So if you like drama, you will freaking love wolves, man. So I rolled up my yellow sweater sleeves and I dug in to find three. What? On earth? Did you know this? Okay, first, let's just beep, beep, back this puppy up. So the genus Canis includes jackals and coyotes and wolves and doggos and dingoes and even the dire wolf, which has been extinct for roughly 10,000 years. Don't let George R.R. Martin pull any wool over your eyes. Dire wolf, two words, as a real animal, and extinct. Dire wolf, one word, Game of Thrones, fiction. Okay, so the alive species of wolf on the planet include the African golden wolf, the Ethiopian wolf, and in North America and across Eurasia, Canis lupus. Now, America, studies have shown we got one wolf, Canis lupus, the gray wolf, plus a bunch of subspecies. So the timber wolf, that's a gray wolf. Arctic wolf, gray wolf. Mexican wolf, that's a gray wolf. The extinct Oregonian brown wolf, that's a gray wolf. The buffalo wolf or loafer wolf, which was hunted to extinction in 1926, it's also Canis lupus. That's a gray wolf. Okay, there's also a red wolf in the Carolinas. And here is where wolf experts throwdown. So there is a ton of debate that's gone on for decades and decades about if the smaller, ruddy wolf of the American Southeast is its own species and thus protected, or a hybrid of a gray wolf and a coyote and thus should be vulnerable to more hunting. As it stands in 2019, it's endangered, but it's protected and is considered its own species. But many scientists are like, ugh, is it though? A lot of DNA says it's a hybrid, but let's drop it and move on to the flaxen fields and golden snow of Yellowstone. I know that this is a broad topic, but if you had to give a little bit of a history and an update on what is happening with Yellowstone wolves and what's been going on in the last couple decades, like break it down. It's been an incredible journey. I do have to say, 
I feel spoiled in working with the population of animals in Yellowstone and the Rocky Mountains more broadly, as well as the people involved. So not only did I meet these wonderful people, but I was faced with trying to help address the questions that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service had with respect to the recovery and the, the future of this endangered wolf. So at the time, they were on the endangered list and needing um, serious recovery efforts. So part of their goal to think about long-term recovery and delisting, one aspect of that was genetic surveys. And the genetic survey was broken down into a series of objectives. Like, can we validate breeding pairs? Can we validate their reproductive success? How many offspring? What is the, the future of those offspring? Do they go and reproduce? Do they disperse? If they disperse, where do they go? Are they traversing the state boundaries or much longer distances? Lupinologists have questions such as who is boning whom and how far do they disperse? So some wolves can travel 10 to 30 miles a day and make it over 500 miles from their home territory. And like them and their fluffy paws, their government protections are also all over the place, depending on the year. Now, the, that outcome kind of changes depending on the um, political situation, the community support, and the agenda of the recovery program. So the Rocky Mountain Gray Wolves originally started off as a federal um, managed set of populations. And over time, eventually some of those wolves were handed over to either the Idaho um, Fish and Game Government or Montana or Wyoming, respectively. Yellowstone as a national park always has the protection of the species within the boundaries. As these populations are connected and they might exchange individuals and then they might have seasons where they're allowed to have permits for take and hunting and trapping. And then other years, they switch back to protection. It's been kind of a roller coaster in, yeah. in seeing how this science is applied and translated and then even facing public comment. What do, what do people think about it? People that live in the area compared to people who don't live in the area. So it's been a really intense and sometimes you know, very frustrating process. So as you can imagine, the country is very divided on this issue. Some folks are like, get bent, wolves, you ate my cow. And others are like, the wolves were here before us and we shouldn't slaughter them to extinction because of ethics and their important role in ecology. So when I wanted to just tiptoe carefree through the wolfland, I did not realize what a thorny landscape this was. How is the wolf population in Yellowstone right now and compared to what it used to be? So the the Rocky Mountains generally have really seen it, a giant increase in the wolf population since their reintroduction in 1995. Mm -hmm. um, most of the numbers kind of settle off at a, a plateau, which reflects what the habitat is willing and capable of supporting, as well as the local community of people. When there are fluctuations, sometimes we have a larger population in one year compared to other years where we might reach a low. Much of that can be looked at in terms of if disease is hitting the population. Maybe um, one year we have something like distemper or parvo or mange, which can impact the survival of the pups of that year. So we'll see these lovely fluctuations that do reflect natural process. But when we 
look at that in a larger context of are there permits to hunt and trap wolves? Are there prey, whether it's elk or um, smaller prey items, are they available? Are they not? That really gives us a complex ecosystem. So the wolves generally do well if we don't step in and you know, start changing policies from year to year. As we see animals moving across landscapes, though, they start entering into new locations where wolves haven't been for a number of decades. And we can start asking questions about how many are, is the local community willing to support, which is a different question than what is the ecosystem capable of supporting. And now the reintroduction, how did that work? Now, were wolves just like at a zero and then they were raised in captivity and then reintroduced? What was that comeback like? Yes, that's a, it's a, such an incredible story in my opinion. So in North America, Gray wolves historically had been found at higher abundance in like Rocky Mountain habitats, temperate forests throughout the lower 48. So we're just going to focus on the lower 48 um, instead of Canada. Sorry. And as humans had gone through and converted landscapes and um, created agricultural farmland, this really changed and altered where wolf habitat was found. And over that amount of time, there was also prosecution of not only gray wolves, but also coyotes and any other canine that basically threatened um, livelihoods, whether they were viewed as pests, whether they were eating your animals, your hoofstock. So they, they being canines, had been heavily targeted for control management. Side note, control management means killed for years with bounties. And I did a little digging, and according to a Montana.gov website, between 1871 and 1875, an estimated 34,000 wolves were killed in northern Montana and southern Alberta. The bounty for each one? Between a dollar and ten dollars. 34,000 wolves killed in four years. So yes, wolves were hella shot. Unsurprisingly, they disappeared from large swaths of the lower 48 states, although the populations are still doing well up in Alaska. Wolves were essentially defined as extirpated in the lower 48 in the early 1900s, um, 1920s, 1930s. It was really rare to have a sighting of a gray wolf. In the Rocky Mountains, there were a series of years where perhaps there were no sightings of canines, and they were deemed locally extirpated at least. There might still have been, and what we suspect now is that there are a handful of animals, highly elusive, living in the depths of the Rocky Mountain forests. And and we possibly have some um, genetic evidence of that. It's very minimal and it's very rare and it's from decades ago. Quick aside, what does extirpated mean? So I looked this up for us and it means locally extinct. So the species lives on, but not in that area. So some wolfies were maybe hiding out, just like, try and shoot my sneaky ass suckers. And then in the era of Corvettes and discos and sequined jumpsuits, something else magical happened in America. When we essentially found that there was public support um, in the mid-1970s and early 1980s to bring back this um, predator, this carnivore, that the government then devised this plan on, great, where, what are we going to do? How do we identify wolves from where and bring them down to the, the central um, part of the American Rocky Mountains? There were a series of biologists that were capable of identifying and trapping 
wolves from um, comparable habitats in Canada, in a couple different provinces of Canada, that they identify two locations, two source populations, and enough local trappers were aiding out our government um, agents to um, trap a number of individuals from the same location. So lupinologists turned their eyes to the great white north. But let's talk family dynamics first. So if we back up, we have this expectation that wolves travel in family groups or at least groups of relatives. And the success of a particular individual is highly dependent upon having group members with it. So pack members. Most of the livelihood of wolves depends upon multiple individuals coordinated in their social hunting and also um, cooperative raising of young and and caring for each other. So the goal was to identify some source populations in Canada and capture, live capture, a handful of individuals so we potentially maintain this pack cohesion where upon release somewhere, these animals still maintain their group structure, still potentially had higher success as a group than you would find if you released one wolf somewhere on its own in the middle of a brand new place. So these two source populations had locals helping out our government um, agents, trapping handfuls of individuals, putting ear tags on them, minimizing the time that we could keep them in captivity for transport. Road trap! And then the the goal of the recovery was to release wolves in two locations. One was uh, Yellowstone National Park, and the other one was in central Idaho. So half of those animals went to Idaho, half of them came to Yellowstone. The Idaho recovery plan was considered a hard release. And it's called that because you essentially transport the crate with the animal and you open its door in its new location and out it goes and you wish it luck. And, and here we released a handful at a time. Okay, bye. Yellowstone implemented a soft release, which was to put animals into a one acre acclimation pen, which minimized human interaction, but it also allowed what is, is hypothesized, this acclimation to a new habitat, perhaps new prey items. So some of the park biologists would periodically, I think it was every month, maybe it was more frequent than that, I don't recall, um, bring in uh, fresh carcasses. And eventually, after about a month in the acclimation, I think it was a month in the acclimation pen, they would just cut a hole or break open the fence and allow the wolves to leave on their own. So that soft release and hard release, the government wasn't sure which would be most suitable for pack cohesion. And it turns out there wasn't really any major difference between the two. Six of one half dozen the other. And Yellowstone has a long history now of something like 12 or so packs, um, who have come in, been formed, and their lineage is now very rich over the 25 years that they've been there. So 25, yeah, something like that. So since reintroduction, the Yellowstone gray wolf population has fluctuated between 2003's high of 174 wolves at once to, as of September 2019, there are 60 wolves in Yellowstone. So that means there are more rockets at Radio City Music Hall than there are wolves in all 3,500 square miles of Wyoming's protected national parkland. And how long do wolves live? 
Oh, in, so in captivity, they can live quite a while in this little posh luxury element of being given food and, and the safety. In Yellowstone, there's usually a, a mortality rate at about four and a half years that, um, two to four and a half is an average lifespan, depending upon, again, what's the cause of mortality. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of intraspecific mortality, which means that wolves kill other wolves. So whether it's territorial disputes or some other some other event, wolves are are absolutely known for um, having battles that end in the mortality of of conspecifics. P.S. Some of the finest people on the planet don't know what conspecific means and had to Google it just now. And it means animals or plants belonging to the same species. But they also get that. Yeah, right. They they are very social creatures. They maintain territories. And even though there is recognition of relatives, there um, are debates about how do you acquire new territory or if you're a disperser and you need to find a mate and you need to have a new home range because you're going to have a litter how do you acquire that new space and those resources to support that especially in a landscape maybe that's saturated with other wolf populations already so this battle usually does result in a give and take of boundaries there's expansion or shrinking of home ranges and then there's usually conflict um either around resources or territory usage. There's a lot of wolf drama. What exactly is a pack dynamic like? Is there an alpha? Is there a beta? Do they take care of the elderly wolves if they make it that long? What is that little pod like? Yeah, so it's very complicated. Um, I The original description of wolf society and this lovely idea of altruism and cooperation that is still maintained but it's not necessarily that cookie cutter that every wolf pack is going to have that size and shape and dynamic so there are many packs that do enjoy this traditional idea of monogamous breeding pairs that have annual litters of pups and maybe some of their Older offspring will maintain membership in the pack to help care for the next generation of offspring. These packs do exist. There are, however, many other structures of packs where there could be a single male that breeds with as many female as he can. Most of the time, nearly all of the time, they're unrelated to him. So there is this element of, of avoiding inbreeding and, and kin recognition. But there are lots of structures and variation to that pack structure. But again, we we love to have this idea that wolves are just always going to care exclusively for their pack members. There is a lot of provisioning for everybody else in the pack, but there is still this battle between I want to reproduce, I want to be the dominant individual in the pack. And that battle can be very much shaped by age and resource availability, body size, maybe just personalities of individuals. There are wolves that might be far more bold and others that are far more shy that will shape how they interact in a pack and what that means for their rank in that system. What the hell was that? What was that? that? You were because don't take away my guests. I have four guests, and if you want to do something at your house, I think you, I was, I'm the hostess, and I originally said, like, I'm Are you ask. really saying this out loud right now? All right, let's move on to house pups and apartment doggos and domestic pillow snorglers. 
You mentioned at the top of this that your dog is downstairs. What kind of dog is it? I have an old English sheepdog. Oh. And she was the, the runt of her litter, and she's also food picky. And so she's kind of a, a miniature English sheepdog. Just for visual reference, an English sheepdog kind of looks like a Swiffer. That's dusty gray in some parts and clean and white in the head area, but it's also giant and alive. Some scientists report that an English sheepdog at the front of its face has two orbs that it uses to see, but in most of the photos I've looked at, it just has a smiling mouth and a boopable snoot and heavy bangs. No eyes. That sounds like the cutest Muppet ever in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it comes to domestic dogs and wolves, I feel like everyone has this question. How far down the line are they? How different genetically are they? And how did we get like hairless chihuahuas (laughs) out of a wolf? How did we domesticate that? Yeah. Dogs and wolves are really curious. They aren't very different at all. The ability... This is a huge and important question for evolutionary biologists in asking... How do we get such variation when we look at dogs? How do we get that when we have these dog breeds that we know came from this basic like cookie cutter of a wolf? Wolves mm-hmm. don't vary that much. They might have different colors. They might have slightly shorter fur, maybe thinner fur if they live in an arid desert environment and a thicker coat if they're more Arctic, but they're not that different in size and shape as you get in dogs. So a lot of the work that's been done to understand the genetics behind why dogs are so diverse shows that there are a lot of mutations that have happened over the course of their domestication. And it can be very few that happen that disrupt genes very quickly and you get a brand new appearance. So a puppy in a litter might carry a brand new mutation and look totally different from its parents. That puppy might have a very interesting and desirable look. So whatever breeder happens upon this dog will want to, if this is their goal, then they can use that dog and breed that dog further in hopes that that mutation gets passed on, maybe amplified as they're tinkering with who they're breeding with. And you get these brand new sizes and shapes. So something like a hairless, a hairless anything. So smooth. How are you so smooth? is usually the result of um, a simple mutation that impacts the formation of hair. So even in chihuahuas, though, or these Chinese cresteds that are typically hairless, having two copies of that hairless mutation is lethal. So you won't have animals that carry both copies of that gene. They can only carry one copy to be hairless. Mm -hmm. And that means every now and then you'll have a dog that has, um, it's called a powder puff form, that they uh, a Chinese crested is actually then going to be covered in hair. And it looks nothing like the hairless form. But that helps maintain a lower level of inviability in the offspring. So it you have to have that segregating in the breed in order to keep the hairless actually a phenotype that's that's present. Is dog breeding interesting for evolutionary biologists because it's like evolution super accelerated? Um, Yes. Yes. The domestication process and the presence of new phenotypes or the origin of new phenotypes has been a pretty rapid history And it's already been done. So I don't have to go into the lab and breed mice or flies or something else 
to see if I get the mutation and then, and then to investigate it further. I already have these mutations and we know essentially how dog breeds are related to each other. We know how they're related to wolves and I can go through and do a genetic survey that tells me essentially when and where these mutations occur. And alternatively, we can learn about health and well-being. So much of this is also anchored in understanding cancers and allergies and other syndromes to help us understand health of these animals in relation to their breed origin. But also we can learn about humans too from that, from that perspective. So I'd always heard that part of what makes dogs the best is that they are goofy floopy doofuses like big hairy babies. So science calls this genetic suspended childhood innocence and kindness neoteny. I call it the thing that makes me want to wear my dog in a baby Bjorn and give her everything she desires. I asked Bridget what the deal is. Right. So dogs, um, domestic dogs represent this unique change in development. And a lot of understanding that, or we still don't understand a lot of that. Let's put it that way. That even my advisor, when he was conducting his um, postdoc work, he was looking at this retention of juvenile traits in dogs, especially when you see the lack of that in wolves. So wolves mature into adulthood. They go through all developmental stages at a pace that's expected. In dogs, through domestication and some genetic changes, it seems that dogs retain their juvenile and puppy-like appearance and behavior and vocalizations much longer. In fact, some will argue that some breeds as adults don't even really look like adults. They've maintained this, this baby-like nature for their entire lives. Just a man, baby. So a wolf is not typically interested that long in humans. But a dog has this incredible, most of the time, incredible draw to interact with people, to seek out that attention, and to have an interaction. So what was interesting is throughout some of my research through my PhD with Bob Wayne and continued on now in my own group, that we found some genetic changes in genes that um, we don't know that much about in dogs, but have been described very strongly and extensively in humans. So we found a set of genes. We actually only found a couple of them. The family of genes are known to shape this syndrome in humans called Williams syndrome or Williams-Buren syndrome. And in humans, this is a syndrome that's caused by a giant deletion of genes. Up to 30 genes can be deleted in a person diagnosed with human uh, with Williams syndrome. That um, the deletion of these genes results in a variety of um, clinical features and characteristics. There's some congenital heart disease. There's some systematic um, concerns. But for me, my interest lies in the behavioral characteristics of the syndrome, which is that people with Williams syndrome are often really, really friendly. So Williams syndrome, which is also called Williams-Buren syndrome, is a genetic condition and it presents with these wide smiles, kind of elfin features, starry patterns in the eyes, some possible cardiac and learning issues. And Bridget says a lack of fear of strangers. When we think about dogs... Potentially, 
as really amplifying one of these traits of Williams syndrome. It's this lack of stranger danger and this interest in interacting with people, essentially being distracted from a job or a task if there's a person nearby. It's almost like your spidey sense. Is there a person around? If there is, and you're a dog, you want to interact with them. I don't care what I'm doing. Dogs, that feeling is mutual. <laughs> and and so what we've really been trying to investigate is how does this actually, does this appear in dogs? How can we quantify it? And does this relate to the same genes? And we're finding that, I'm not saying this is the end of the story, but it does seem like a lot of the same genes involved in human Williams syndrome and the behavioral changes, we see a lot of the same genes altered and modified in dogs. And what we're doing is trying to quantify of the different mutations an individual dog can carry, we already have ways to predict how social they are probably going to be with people. Although this is couched in the idea that you're still shaped by your upbringing and your early experiences in life, we have to account for that. But if we also just know the genotype, we have some fraction of that prediction that we can make. So it all makes for a very possible story that just needs a lot more effort to unravel. Bridget says that, of course, different individuals of the same breed can have much different personalities. Kind of like a golden retriever can be sassy or shy or playful or mellow. And there may be genetic markers for those traits. So if you heard the personality psychology episode, that ologist talks about how much genetics influences our personalities versus environment. I honestly think about that episode like constantly. So we are who we are. So let's just accept ourselves and each other. No hate. Only snoot poops. Will you be celebrating Wolfenut? <laughs> I feel like I do that as often as I can <laughs> anyways. <laughs> Just, yeah, I do believe that you deserve extra little presents for being kind to wolves and dogs, though. <laughs> I would love to have that. That's such a lovely idea. I mean, I think there's always this dichotomy in culture that wolves are amazing presence in our world and, and that's contrasted with this idea of big bad wolves and you know wolves will stalk you and and bite you and and I understand the cultural differences between each of those experiences I find that it feels like a very sad empty world if we don't have wolves in it they not only hold a very significant place in ecology but also in interacting with human civilization throughout the course of our history. This is where dogs come from. Dogs are a domesticated wolf and that bond in human civilizations and their function in helping humans evolve, I think has is a really special relationship that very rarely exists with certainly other carnivores. Dogs are the first domestic species and they're this incredible carnivore. So, to me, every day is Wolf and Newt. <laughs> um, can I ask you some quick Patreon questions? Okay. Is that cool? Perfect. 
Okay, but before we get to your amazing and weird and insightful Patreon questions, a few words about sponsors who make it possible each week to donate to a cause of the ologist choosing. And this week, Bridget chose the Red Wolf Coalition at redwolves.com, which teaches people about the value of red wolves to the ecosystem and to the people living in the restoration area. The Red Wolf Coalition works with the United States Fish and Wildlife Service Red Wolf Recovery Program to stay up to date on red wolf restoration and management issues and to partner in the effort to maintain healthy populations of wild red wolves. And remember, this is the type of canine that people keep going back and forth about whether or not they deserve protection if they're not a separate species. And Bridget says, I continue to study red wolves and they currently need as much support as they can get from the public. And I'll put a link to the show notes for more about that charity. Now, making that possible are a few sponsors of Ologies, which I may talk about right now. This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be exciting or unexpected. Unexpected is for podcasts about bizarre scientific revelations, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. Oh, Kiwiko. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allies love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. KiwiCo's like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces. They keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% 
less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Okay, back to your lupine inquisitions. Becky Woodruff wants to know, has anyone ever actually been raised by wolves and <laughs> any idea where that expression came from? <laughs> Isn't there the mythology of the brothers of Rome that were raised by, you know, mother, the mother she-wolf, and she provided nutrition and, and safety to these two um, founders? I mean, that to me, perhaps extended um, further into our history might explain raised by wolves in either a positive or a negative connotation. <laughs> yeah, it seems like the founders of Rome did okay. So it seems yeah. like it's a bit of a misnomer in terms of an idiom, but I'll yeah. we'll look into it for sure. Okay, so side note, I looked into this to see if there were other origins, and the legend of feral kids raised by wolves is apparently a long-standing one. But in the 1920s, a preacher in India claimed to have rescued two young girls from a wolf's den. Amala and Kamala, as they were known, walked on all fours, were said to have preferred raw meat and not like people very much. And tragically, they died really young. Amala from a kidney infection at age three and Kamala from tuberculosis at 17 after a life of people trying to domesticate her. People didn't really buy his story about the wolves, but history is peppered with tales of abandoned and so-called feral kids, the founders of Rome being, of course, the poster children. And that is very sad. Let's also consider that dogs, who some researchers say have been domesticated to be more accepting of animals that are not conspecific, will mother abandon kittens and piglets and ducklings. And I just went down a video rabbit hole watching dogs bottle feed lambs. And we already suspected that we didn't deserve them, but now we know factually. Now, speaking of cherubs on leashes... Ryan Clark wants to know, if all dogs go to heaven, does that oh. include wolves? <laughs> I don't see why it would exclude wolves. Yeah. Yeah. They're doing their best out there. They're doing their um, best. Yeah. <laughs> I like thinking that there's just a heaven that's just all, just a bunch of wolves. Just, just a bunch of wolves. <laughs> yeah. Um, Bath Buddy Art and Anakin Jeniak both asked about lone wolves. Are there any theories about why some wolves become loners? Um. There are certainly many times in a wolf's life where they will absolutely choose to venture out on their own. And that could be the random sighting that you're, you're kind of catching a wolf in mid dispersal. Or there's also perhaps this, I, I don't know how commonly it's known, but that wolf packs only exist as packs seasonally. No way. So in, in winter, when prey is usually a little more, um, vigilant, so snow is on the ground, food for prey 
uh, species like elk or caribou is harder to find. They're usually more vigilant against predators because they're more vulnerable on snow surfaces. If it's packed snow and their long legs get stuck in it, they're quite vulnerable. So wolves really do well in the winter when they pack up. And in the warm months, when there's much more food resources, they're often not in packs. So you might see wolves on their own because they're just out hanging out, doing their wolfy thing. They rendezvous with each other periodically, but but wolves are often, for a good half of the year in temperate zones, on their own. So lone wolves, yep, lone wolves absolutely exist. They might be out in pairs, hanging out with their favorite buddy or or someone, but it's often um, they're not always that close in touch with each other. So stop using the term lone wolf as a symbol of nefarious and secretive evil. Wolves deserve better. For canines, doing their wolfy thing is just introverting, kind of getting out of dodge for a bit, being independent. So the next time you leave a party early, maybe don't Irish goodbye in shame. Just interrupt the din of conversations with like a low, soulful howl and say, doing my wolfy thing, I'm out. That's a power move. And Aaliyah and Isabel... B. Holper both asked about a meme about the leader of the pack being the last one, the closing ranks. Is yeah. that meme true or not? So I believe that those behaviors exist. So I kind of want to counter that with an example that I do know is true. <laughs> so many times it's hard to identify the animals of certain ranks. So if you just get a picture and everyone's pointing to the last, you know, giant animal, like that's the leader who's making sure no one falls behind. There are packs that probably have that structure. Absolutely. And especially in locations where wolves are watched every day. So Yellowstone, people can visually recognize who is the dominant animal or pair of animals in the pack. Absolutely. They will see that. To follow up Um, I do know an example coming from Yellowstone where hunting is a very dangerous behavior. So I would dare say that trekking through some wilderness is not actually the problem. It's acquiring food where you're, where um, animals are facing antlers or horns or hooves and kicks from the prey item they're trying to acquire. And that's when mortality is actually um, most risky. So in a pack structure, however, acquiring food um, has a very specific rank. So the youngest animals don't always know what they're doing. And the middle-aged animals have the most experience. They're probably at their peak of physiology and muscle build. And then we have usually the older animals, which are running the pack. And they're um, even though they essentially have all this knowledge, they aren't always the first one on the scene. So the story goes that those middle kind of prime animals are the ones coming in at the most dangerous points because they know where to bite a prey, uh, an elk, let's say. They know where to bite and how to hold it. They're using these moments as training experiences for the younger animals who will eventually assume those peak, you know, prime hunting roles. And then at the last minute, oftentimes we'll see the alpha run in once the the major drama has been like 
under control. It's this weird balance of who's the most experienced versus who's actually kind of in control of things and making sure um, either everything is done correctly or that they get the last say or that they're going to make sure that everything is done properly. So there are roles and these roles within a pack can change based on the environment and composition of a pack. So yes, that can be true, but I don't, I would, I would hesitate to say that's exactly how wolf society works. Is that alpha kind of just being a manager in the background? <laughs> I don't know, actually. <laughs> yeah, and that seems so political like coming in at the last yeah. moment for like yeah. press opportunities. We got yeah. an elk, everyone. Yeah. We got this elk. Everyone's like, what? You were <laughs> you weren't even You weren't even involved. <laughs> but the notion of an alpha male, as we think of them in concrete terms, like a CEO overseeing a terrified team of subordinates, is a myth. So canine ethologist David Meech, who's studied wolf behavior for decades, has disavowed some of his previous notions of alphas because they were based on captive wolf packs of unrelated wolfies. So in the wild, most packs are just families of a pop and a ma and their pups and maybe a few other families and their kiddos, maybe an unrelated straggler or two. Meech did report seeing some dominance behaviors, and in his 2010 paper titled Prolonged Intensive Dominance Behavior Between Gray Wolves, Canis Lupus, he describes a time he witnessed what his team thinks was a dad wolf straddling and harassing what may have been his son, kind of like a test before the son took off for his own territory. So yes, you've been hazed by your own dad. Oh, and your mom, when it comes to canine genomics, just took a DNA test, and she is, in fact, 100% that bitch. A lot of people asked about movies. Wolf okay. movies. Okay. Do you have a favorite wolf movie? Marin Mossman wants to know, does it bother you that when Disney needs a threatening animal in movies that they tend to pick wolves? Uh, Hannah Everhart wants to know, how bad is Teen Wolf in regards to actual wolf behavior and anatomy? Any thoughts on wolves in the media? <laughs> Teen, teen Wolf, like yeah. the Michael J. Fox Teen Wolf movie yeah. where he turns into a wolf and he's like in high school? Yeah. <laughs> you probably have to no. pee on more stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, I think um, a werewolf in, um, was it Paris? A werewolf in Paris oh, or London? American werewolf in American London. American werewolf. Yeah, one of those. Yeah. That's, I, I watched that more recently than other wolf-based movies. I was attacked by this Wild dog. And yeah, I mean, I think there's always been this, there's always this fear, the little red riding hood, the wolf is going to eat you. The wolf is just like bloodthirsty and will kill for no reason. Um, yeah, there, that is out there. People represent wolves and continue to portray them this way. And it is upsetting because this is not any different than if any other animal, uh, well, so I'm not saying that their bloodlust is, is, true, but the defense of where you live and the getting your food, we, we eat animals. We mm -hmm. have a whole culture on how we acquire our protein-based food that are animal-based uh, protein. It is, it does bother me, but I also realize it's, it's Hollywood and movies and people represent lots of things incorrectly for sake of creative license. So I try not to watch it. There are things I like I cannot watch. The uh the Alpha movie that talks about like domesticate I don't I refuse to even watch that because I'm I'm absolutely sure I'm just going to <laughs> 
have to I walk out. I haven't seen it yet. I'm going to look into it, though. Oh, please it's on do. Your shit list. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not even going to attempt watching it. I just watched the trailer for this, and it's about the first dog ever domesticated, I think. And it looks like a beautiful piece of entertainment that would, yes, infuriate people who study wolves. A ton of people. I'm going to read their names very quickly. Kelsey Warren, Sam G, Dakota Harriman, Anna Valerie, Jody Kendall, Batter Alshua, Andrea, Teresa Bosanova, Mandy McCombs, and Sarah Greer. Sarah Greer asked, my neighbor claims her dog is half wolf and that her mm. dog is the offspring of a domestic canine who mated with a wolf. Is this biologically possible or is she just trying to make her dog seem more badass? Both. Both are probably true. Okay. I mean, both are... Well, the first one is certainly true. Dogs and wolves can absolutely reproduce, no question about it. Okay. Um, the the feasibility of her dog or, or her dog's parent coming across a wolf, I don't know if this is a captive environment, if someone's breeding dog-wolf hybrids, which is highly possible, or if they live somewhere rural enough where a wolf is running around and decided to reproduce. It, both are possible, but offspring in that cross is absolutely viable. It takes effort to, to genetically and morphologically tell a hybrid from a, a purebred animal let alone any cross back crosses like third generation wolf hybrid mm. but it's it's possible there are lots of signals of that and people work at that all the time to try to identify if there's a genetic test or if someone who claims that they're selling hybrids dog wolf hybrids is it a true hybrid or is it just a wolfy looking dog yeah have, it's it's possible it's challenging have you seen a rise in that since like game of thrones no, example. I don't know about the hybrids, but people were talking about an increase in like husky or Malamute purchases and that mm -hmm. um, often I think the saddest or the most challenging part about dog breed purchases is not enough research for what that breed needs. Mm -hmm. So having having a husky maybe in L.A. is a very hard situation to face with a breed that has very specific needs, not only energy needs, but um, temperament needs. Mm -hmm. So I, I have read that, that um, uh, Game of Thrones is responsible for husky and spitz type dog um, breed purchases. Are those more closely related to wolves or no? They not, just look like them. Not really. They look like them. They There is a possibility that those breeds in their history have a more recent influx of wolf genes through hybridization, but we can also make them look like a wolf without them being a wolf. Got it. Um, a ton of people, Natalie Mastic, Lauren Dean, Christina Weaver, Andrea Levinson, Amelia Hines, Matthew Thomas Hill, John Sansone, Stephanie Malik, Anna Thompson, Jody Kendall, Lucy Keegan, and Samantha G all had questions. Do wolves care about the moon? Do they howl at the moon? Do they like the moon? Does the moon affect their behavior? What is it with wolves and the moon? What's up? Why in popular culture are wolves so horny for the moon? That's, a, that's um, yeah, I see why that's a question. Well, wolves howl all the time, regardless of what the moon is doing. Uh, so I don't know if having the moon out actually, so the, a full moon will give more light at night. And although most wolves are not actually hunting in the middle of the night, the dawn and dusk era will have p perhaps more light than normal, which might make hunting or movement a little more interesting. And maybe there's more activity. So maybe there's more howling because there's more action. But I, I this is just me speculating. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know anything that ever talks about having to basically control for if there's moonlight or not on understanding a wolf behavior. So mystical wolf moon connections are flim flam, but wolves communication devices, aka songs sung from their boobable snoots, have a range of up to 10 miles and it helps get the pack back together or intimidate others not in their clique. So essentially they're saying, I'm lonely or get away from me, you scare me and I hate you. So a howl serves as nature's Twitter. What about um, howling? Hollis wants to know if there are different regional accents Mm. to howls. I wouldn't say regional most wolf howls have a stereotypical structure, um, but what what's interesting is that, like right now, the the debate and the focus on red wolves is one angle of data that people want to start analyzing is looking at the structure of howls between coyotes, gray wolves, and red wolves, and they all differ. So that's a very interesting aspect of what happens when you have perhaps different species or different hybrids. So a dog-wolf hybrid is expected to have a very different acoustic sound when it howls than a, a pure gray wolf or um, a pure dog, I guess, for that matter. <laughs> I wonder yeah. if wolves um, howl along with ambulances too, or if that's just dogs. I don't know about that. I, I suppose know. I suppose anyone who has a dog wolf hybrid could could talk more about that, and also zoos. I don't know what yes. they have in zoos. I wonder. So one YouTube user, Dustin Olson, posted a video in 2016 titled "Wolf Howls at a Fire Truck Siren." Exclamation point! Exclamation point! Exclamation point! And it was taken at the Miller Park Zoo in Bloomington, Illinois. I hereby invite you to Google wolf howling at a siren for a wealth of returns. And there's another video taken at the Chicago Zoo by YouTube user Seabrawley. And it features a pack of wolves singing to an air raid siren. And the imagery is so chilling. These regal beasts in an enclosure sounding a chorus of the wild to the tune of human war alarms. The result is beautiful and sweet and scary, like a really well-intentioned choir at a nursing home. Jamie Pickles, Raymond J. Joyge, and Stephanie Malik all ask if you wear any of the wolf pack Howling at the Moon shirts. <laughs> Do you, if you have a wolf shirt or a three wolf moon shirt, I thought really heavily about buying one. Um, I do, I do not, I do not have a wolf shirt. I have to say, my mom loves to give me wolf items, okay. so I have like I have a little jacket with an embroidered wolf on it that I only I only wear when I go to Yellowstone because I feel like that's appropriate. Now, wolf gear, I do. I do have a wolf tattoo. You do? So it's a wolf mm. skull with really great ornate decorations, and it has a gold tooth. Nice. Yeah. When did you get that? Years ago, maybe six years ago, something like that. Well, you were already working on wolves? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I expect to be tagged in your wolf tattoo photos, kiddos. So celebrate Wolfenute. Show me those skin paintings. Also, this next question was asked by patrons Chris Brewer, Allison Turry, Jess Spencer, Caitlin Brett, Diana Silver, Anna Valerie, Justin Griggs, Tara McNee, and Jennifer Tran. 
And a few, well, several people asked um, about reintroduction of wolves, say, in Yellowstone, and why is that important for the ecology? What is that doing for the ecology there? Uh, Yeah, so um, there is this tremendous effort to understand what the presence or the absence of a wolf has on the local ecology. So it's been framed in terms of a few different aspects. One is the... um, distribution and type of trees in the area, which Mm -hmm. reflect potentially the abundance uh, of herbivores. So the idea is this connection between trophic levels, that if you have too many herbivores grazing and browsing, and you overgraze or browse trees, then you impact songbirds and mesocarnivores and plant distributions, and you shift habitat types. By the by, a mesocarnivore is an animal that eats 30 to 70% meat, and the rest of the diet is plants and fruit and fungus. Like at a holiday party spread, they'd hover around the deli platter, but they'd also fuck with the stuffed mushrooms and the grapes. Maybe a celery stick? Whereas if you have a wolf present to maintain essentially one angle of population control on herbivores, even though other predators will, so mountain lions and and bears and wolverines, but they don't quite have the impact of a wolf. So having the wolf back in the habitat, its action could reduce herbivory, which could then result in this recovery of trees and shrubs and grasslands and then passerines and mesocarnivores and ungulates. So a lot of folks such as John Walker, Fruit Fly, Susan Kennan, Yana Wisniewski, and Allison Turry had questions about killing wolves. What about hunting wolves in Yellowstone? Why is that necessary or legal or encouraged or permitted? Hunting of wolves in Yellowstone is not permitted because that's national park. But but if a wolf leaves the park boundaries, and as we all know, wolves can read signs, mm-hmm. that the moment they step outside of a park, if they're in Wyoming, or if they're in Montana, or if they're in Idaho, each of those states might have a permitted season for hunting wolves. And... Um, So my personal opinion is you don't need to hunt wolves and they are not necessarily more abundant than what they were X number of years ago. And that all depends on your time point. Are we talking 100 years ago or 3000 years ago? Those numbers will be different. But hunting does also give the community some involvement and input and some financial contribution to the state. So by permitting the hunting and take of maybe a hundred wolves in a state means then that the community is involved and they do have a stake in the matter. Mm-hmm. So hunting wolves does happen in states that feel that the population in their state can persist even under, you know, the loss of a hundred animals or whatever they've estimated to be adequate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and what about encounters? Sadie Newman, Mariko Shin, Carrie, Isabel B. Hopper, and a few people asked, what should I do if I see a wolf when I'm out hiking or backpacking? I would say it's not very different from bear gear. I would have um, bells and whistles on my shoes and backpack and um, blowing some one of these like survival whistles will just pretty much deter an animal who already doesn't really want to interact with you. Okay, bye. Okay. Um, yeah, having pepper spray is never a bad thing. So I would just 
you know, probably turn and walk the other way or back up. They're a little bit different. They're not quite like bear. So um, usually a wolf is already going to see you much long before you've ever seen it. So I would be surprised if you happen to surprise a wolf, although mm. it, I'm sure it can happen. It's not anything I've ever worried about. I do. Um, in Yellowstone, wolves know that you're there. Um, especially those that are highly visible on the landscape. But most of the time, they're going to avoid you, and they will take a really long, circuitous route to get um, as far away from you as possible and yet go the route that they wanted to achieve. I would say this is a rare event that you would happen upon a surprised wolf. And a bunch of people wanted to know, what can we do to help the wolfies? How can we save them, especially red wolves? Dakota Harriman asked. Yeah, I think um, any, well, email, email your, um, or send a letter to your congressman or congresswoman, your local government. I know that there are many agencies that are pro-Red Wolf or pro-Gray Wolf, so NRDC, or there's a, there's Red Wolf foundations in many locations. You can donate money, you can donate services. So Yellowstone will always use their park entrance to also help with their programs and run the run the national park but just be a voice mm-hmm. just announce it uh, announcement i would like to help the wolves and then last two questions i always ask is what sucks the most about your job what do you hate about your job <laughs> <laughs> what do i hate about my job oh i think the most challenging part of my job is that I don't have enough hands and arms and I feel (laughs) I don't, I just, there's not enough hours in the day. There are so many things that I want to do every day that I don't have enough time. I think it's because there's every, everything is so interesting and I'm so excited to see what I'll learn from this result and pressing any key on my keyboard to show me the new table or the new figure will lead to another 20 questions that I want to start exploring. And I just don't have time. I can't do all of that, but I'm so excited about it all. That's hard. It's so hard to prioritize. (laughs) So wolf researchers, they need seven times the hours because there are so many things to learn. Also, Bridget mentioned that wolf research grants aren't easy to get, and sometimes she funds her own research with money she would use for hobbies. So if you'd like to toss her a bone, though, she has a link to a Benefunder page on her website, which I'll put in the show notes, just in case you'd like to impress the canine spirits in honor of Wolfenute. Also, her site says, if you are a dog owner and interested in participating in the behavioral genetic study of canine sociability, please visit the project's webpage with a link. Doggos for science. It's the best. And what about the best thing about your job? What do you love about what you do? Oh my gosh, that... I get to do this. I can't believe that this is a job. I mean, I just, I, it's amazing. Every so often, you know, you have those rough days and you're like, what else could I do? Like nothing. I would never want to do anything else. I can't imagine a, whatever a normal job would look like. It's, I get to sit and research something that's invisible, right? Like we can't see DNA. We can't see evolution tangibly from 3 million years ago. And yet we press some buttons in our computer and some really lovely evolutionary theory. And we have, we've exposed what our history looks like and we can understand more about 
something we, we can never possibly observe. And I think that's just so incredible. And to use that in forward thinking, that's really where I find the biggest challenge. It's a, it's a positive challenge, but, but kind of moving from hindsight to, to future vision and trying to get people to think about how do we preserve our world? Even though you've never seen how evolution gave what we see today, we now have to think about where it's going forward. And that long-term vision is hard when we're not going to be around to see it, maybe our great-great-grandchildren, and it's hard to think about those people we don't even know, mm -hmm. but trying to maintain this planet and its diversity and, and all of its beautiful inhabitants and ecologies. Like we, we can't see that, but that's like, that's the hard part is connecting those two. But I think that's a really incredible opportunity that I can help give something like that. And it can start with a bunch of frozen wolf blood. It does. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing the work you do. Say hi to the wolves for me. I will. Thank you for inviting me. This is very fun. So catch some eye contact of a nearbyologist and ask smart person a stupid question because we're only roaming this landscape for so long. What do you have to lose? Also, you can follow Dr. Bridget Brownholt on Twitter at the beeps, B-E-E-P-Z, not the boobs, the beeps. There's a link to her Princeton website and to the Red Wolf Coalition and to the sponsors of this episode in the show notes. And there's always more links up at alleyward.com slash ologies slash lupinology. Ologies is at ologies on Twitter and Instagram. Say hello there. I'm Allie Ward with one L on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you, Hannah Lippo and Aaron Talbert for adminning the Facebook Ologies podcast group full of wonderful, compassionate nerds. Ologiesmerch.com has all of your Ologies podcast merch needs, t-shirts, hats, sweatshirts, all sorts of things. If you post a photo to Instagram, tag it with Ologies merch, and we'll repost you on Mondays. Thank you, Shannon Feltis and Bonnie Dutch, for helping manage that. They're two sisters who have a brand new, wonderfully fun podcast called You Are That. It's out wherever you get podcasts. Also, thank you to Emily White and all the Ologies transcribers for helping make bleeped episodes and transcripts available for free to anyone who needs and wants them at alleyward.com slash ologies dash extras. Assistant editing was done by Jared Sleeper of Mind Jam Media and of the excellent mental health podcast, My Good Bad Brain. And thank you to a bright, shiny sky moon, Stephen Ray Morris of the Percast and C. Jurassic Wright for helping assemble the pieces of the show each and every week. And if you stay till the end of the episode, you know I tell you a secret. And this week's secret is my dog, Grammy Gremlin, has been eating this food that has fish oil in it for a good brain. And so I guess she could do crossword puzzles faster and uh, a shiny coat. And her mouth smells like Satan's outhouse. It is so stinky. And I still kiss her on the cheeks and I ask her why she's so pretty. And also sometimes I'll give her a greenie and be like, clean that up, woman. Wow. Wow. I just want to snuggle her constantly. I'm pretty sure that she's hijacked all of my molecular neurobiology, and I'm not bad at it. Okay, so go celebrate Wolf and Newt. Make a cake that looks like a full moon. Celebrate an ancient one-year-old secular non-traditional holiday. Say hello to the doggos in your life. Hide some presents around the house. And remember, no hate, only snoot poops. Okay, bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology,
If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt at 3 a.m., at all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New Miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient rich, high quality ingredients. Miracle Grow is simply the best. 